Amen. Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you too. We're in the book of Acts this morning, chapter 4. <clears throat> Pardon me. We'll take verses 23 through 31. Acts of the Apostles, chapter 4. Would you stand for the reading of God's word, please? And if you're home watching, why don't you stand there too, if you're able. Beginning in verse 23. Being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So when they had heard that, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them, who by the mouth of your servant David said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against Yahweh and against his Messiah. For truly, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered together to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word by stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. Please be seated. Fortified by prayer, that is the title of this morning's message. There are three things I want to point out about this ongoing story that started in chapter 3 in the first verse. Peter and John going into the temple. They were uh, met by this lame beggar whom they healed and converted also. And then they were arrested, the apostles, because Peter went on to preach. And he went on to preach Christ and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And the authorities threatened them, telling them not to preach anymore in the name of Jesus. And Peter said, well... We're going to do what God tells us. You've know, you got to figure out what you've got to do. And, and they were released. Well, when, once released, they go to where the brethren are. And uh, so, so the three things I want to point out going into this that I hope is beneficial to all of us is that with the believers assembled together, they are fortifying themselves with prayer. The dictionary says that the word fortify means to provide with defensive works as a protection against attack. But Christianity has to do more than fortify itself. It's not enough to be ready for an attack. We have to be ready for attacks, for sure, but that, that's just not enough. It's not enough to be ready. We must break enemy fortifications. We must go against what Satan has done, his achievements. We must attack them. They don't mind attacking us. You didn't bake a cake for me. You didn't take pictures of my wedding for me. You didn't make the pizza that I wanted, whatever. We see the enemy just attacking these petty attacks that turn into these great victories for them. 
Well, we do believe we need to be fortified in prayer. And emphasizing, again, it's not enough just to be ready for the enemy's attacks. It's not easy, but it is worth it. If we remain only on defense, Satan gets to keep everything. We don't take anything from him. What is implied when Jesus said, the gates of hell should not prevail? We are supposed to engage the enemy. Otherwise, we will be besieged. The enemy will just surround our fortifications. Napoleon, in his Maxims of War, he said the side that stays within its fortifications is beaten. Well, that's true of physical war, and it is true of spiritual war. The apostles are getting ready for conflict. Having been arrested, having been threatened, they go to the believers to fortify themselves in prayer. For what? Because they are getting ready to launch an offensive. They are going to go on the attack. Prayer is an assault weapon if used properly. Oh, it's a defensive weapon too, but it is also an assault weapon. Jesus said, do you think that I came to bring peace on earth? I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. There's going to be conflict. And as I mentioned, it's worth it. As a matter of fact, to try to shy away from it is worse. Not only for others, but for the individual also. Fortified by prayer to advance forward to engage the interests of the enemy. That's what Jesus told his disciples to do. We are the disciples too. We are no less disciples than the apostles and those who were the first Christians. Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature, said Jesus. Well, wherever I am is part of all the world. And wherever I am, I need to be ready to struggle without hatred. Not easy to do. In fact, without the Spirit of God, we get very carnal and hatred comes very easy to us. Because Satan makes it so. Resistance without compromise. I mean, there are essential things about our faith that we're just not going to give up ever. I know people who try to get us to compromise think that they're entitled to our surrender. They think that we should give and take. But that might be true with, you know, picking out what restaurant to go to, but it is not true when it comes to the doctrine and to the leading of the Lord as guided by the word. To have triumph without bitterness to gain the victory and not look back and say, yeah, but it would have been better just to go forward in the victories that God has given us. These are things that belong to going into all the world. Keep away from hatred, compromise, and bitterness. There are other things, but these are the ones on the surface this morning. It's not the miracle of Peter and John on the lame man that put Satan on defense. It was the preaching that put Satan on defense. Because they got very defensive. We don't want you preaching in this name. The miracle was secondary. It was used. It was important. It doesn't diminish its value. It's just not as valuable as the preaching of the word. Otherwise, preaching would be pointless without miracles. But as a matter of fact, preaching is very powerful without miracles. Uh, with, without miracles, as I said. You're going to have to get used to, if you attend here, you're going to have to get used to the fact that my errors are correct. <laughs> That's the first point. 
to fortify themselves in prayer so they could attack. The second part of this section is Peter himself. I know he's with John, but Peter is the one that is outstanding in this story. Peter once greatly failed his Lord. This type of failure did not stop Jesus Christ from using him nonetheless and in a positive way. Well, God can use you in a negative way. That's the case of all of the the villains in the Bible. God is sovereign. He still controls them. But God also uses those who come to him, of course. We understand that. And it's good that we're reminded that Peter was a failure, but used also greatly by the Lord. And he would never have served had he remained under the imprisonment or in the imprisonment of his guilt. If he just said, I just can't, you know, I tried serving Christ, I failed him, I denied him three times, I, yeah, well, Christ has forgiven you, yeah, I know that, but I just can't. Then we would not be reading about Peter in the book of Acts. Later, he is rearrested, again, for preaching Christ. He is chained in a jail, and then he is miraculously released from his chains. But before he could be free to serve, there was an iron gate in front of him. He had to get past that iron gate. It wasn't enough that he was unshackled. It was not enough that he was free from the chains. There's more to be done. There was that iron gate. Maybe that's the way it is in your life. Maybe there's some iron gate barring your way out into freedom to preach. Some guilt still on you. Even though you're not chained, you're saved, you're just not free. Acts chapter 12. This speaks about when the angel brought Peter out. When they were past the first and second guard post, they came to the iron gate that leads to the city, which opened to them of its own accord, and they went out. We come across these iron gates in our life. And our tears and our hands cannot open them. Peter's tears and his hands could not open this gate, but God can and God did. And if God did not, then it would have been a redirect of Peter's assignment. That's all it would have meant. It would not have meant defeat. It would say, okay, this is what God is doing. He wants me here then. But again, he is, the gate is opened. God has opened the iron gate that kept Peter locked in. And we either walk through it as free or remain bound behind the open gate. I don't want to remain a prisoner behind an open gate. If God has opened something up for me, I want to go through. And what is the first thing that God has opened up for Peter? Forgiveness. He took away the guilt. If Peter wanted to keep his guilt, he could have kept it and stayed behind the open gate, but he does not. He goes through it. Peter walked through, unworthy but loved, forgiven, and one more thing, useful. It's the whole story of Onesimus and Philemon. He may not have been useful to you at one time, but he was useful to me. And now he's coming back to you. Every single believer. All right, let's just say, every single believer is useful to God, that's, I want to finish that sentence. Now, next sentence. Maybe you don't assemble 
Maybe you're watching online, you don't come to church. Okay, you know you're supposed to, and I'm not going to browbeat you for that. Therefore, what are you going to do now? You can just say, well, I don't attend assembly, and that's pretty much it. Or you can find ways to attack the enemy from your remote location, from your outpost. God doesn't love you any less. I think it is very important that we scan often our lives to see what God is doing, always knowing, you know, in my worst times, and I get, I've, I've always been mindful of the love of Jesus Christ on me through the cross. I've always been mindful of my failures too, but I've always been mindful that his grace is greater. Well, that's the second point. Peter didn't let the, the guilt stay on him. The third point, is anyone here this morning trying to live for Christ beneath the rubble of guilt and failure? If you are, then you're always on defense. Not the fence, defense. You're always looking to just, where, where's the enemy going to come next? You don't know where you're going to be. You're not taking anything. You're just defending yourself all the time because of the guilt. Unable to effectively damage enemy interest. And I just want to encourage you. that God wants you through that iron gate. He says, I've taken it away. God's grace has a very short memory. This is how he has designed it. I couldn't say God's memory is defective because there's nothing defective about God. But I can say in his grace, his memory is very short for those who have come to him. I'm going to read the two Old Testament verses that the Hebrew writer, Paul, as I believe, uh, he quotes them, which means they are valid in the New Testament. Psalm 25, verse 7. Do not remember... Well, this one Paul doesn't quote. I'm quoting it. But that's okay. Paul would not object. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. According to your mercy, remember me. For your goodness sake, O Yahweh. The sins, remember not the sins of my youth. You know, some of you, the younger ones, you haven't yet piled up enough guilt to get it. It's there, you just don't get it. I hope... You younger Christians, I hope you are not dumb enough, dumb enough to let Satan choose your friends. I'd rather have uh, good friends that God has brought into my life than evil friends that the devil has chosen for me. It's, who has to even say that? Well, I did. I had to say that. Because our youth don't get it. You think now you're breaking free from home, breaking free from mom and dad, that you're smart enough, not so fast. You might not be as smart as you, in fact, you probably aren't as smart as you think, unless, as a Christian, you are adhering to Christ. You come to church. How many of you, adult and teenager alike, prepare yourself to come into the house of God? There are multiple steps that would enhance that experience. One is, of course, prayer, and to say, okay, I'm going into the assembly, yes. And it's better to listen than to speak, says the Bible, when going into the house of God. Lest you're the speaker, of course, else it would be here like this. And you wouldn't get anything. <laughs> but, 
The uh, other thing is, why not read the section we're going to be in so that you're not guessing where we are, trying to f- connect the dots until you just get bored and say, that's it. Because you know, if, if I'm speaking to you from the scripture and you're bored, it ain't me. It's you. Now, I can make boring. No, I can't. No, never mind. Strike that. See, errors are correct. Isaiah 43. So what we got first was the psalmist saying, do not remember the sins of my youth. Thank you, God. Your mercy washes those sins away. We were just singing about God's mercy and his removing our sins as far as east is from west. But God also says, I don't even remember. What are you talking about? Isaiah 43, verse 25, I, even I, am he who blots out your transgressions for my own sake, and I will not remember your sins. So if you've got this guilt on you, you're you're doing all the remembering. You're the one, oh, my sins, oh, I denied the Lord three times, oh, I just can't, oh, yeah, you're behind the gate, you're free, the gate is open, but you won't come out, will you? And God says, you've got to take the first step. You have to take the first full step. When I learned to walk high iron, high steel, there's two things. I had to take a step, and it had to be a full step, not one of those little (laughs) baby steps. And it was liberating. I was told, you know, when you walk, just take a full step, step out there. And you either step out and make it across, or you die. (laughs) Just, you know. (laughs) <laughs> but you'd have nobody to blame. But anyway, God uses saved sinners with their past failures. And that's what we're seeing in Peter this morning. Christ died to save sinners, lawbreakers, breakers of God's law. We got that. But he rose not only to demonstrate his power to save them, but to use them. And this is why the apostles keep preaching the resurrection everywhere they go. And we should, too. It's not outdated. Well, you know, we don't have to preach the resurrection so much. Why don't we? You think the world understands it? The resurrection is an ultimatum. You believe he died and got up. when He wasn't revived. Lazarus was revived. He was resurrected. He was not the same when he got up. Now we look at the 23rd verse, keeping in mind this is that Peter who got past his guilt, who is being used by God. And in verse 23, and being let go, they went to their own companions and reported all that the chief priests and elders had said to them. So this time they're released. It won't always be this way. This time they avoided a beatdown. It will not always be this way. Maybe that's the case with you. Maybe maybe you've had a beatdown. Well, it might not be that way next time. Maybe you avoided one. Well, maybe you won't avoid it next time. God is no less God. He is no less gracious. He's no less good. His word is no less trustworthy. Regardless of what you experience, God is God. And he's not applying for the job. It's already established. I'm going to cut to the last verse that I want to read this morning because it's appropriate now. The psalmist, Psalm 119, celebrating God's word, saying how magnificent God's word is, even though God's word is not a magic wand to take away all our problems. And the psalmist says, trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your commandments are my delight. I still love your word, God. 
Trouble and anguish. Pain is in my life. But I still love you and I love your word. This is the pattern we have from Scripture. So these two apostles, Peter and John, are released from jail this time. They don't go straight home. I think I would have gone home. I would have gone home to get something to eat. Because jail food could not have been good. And then I would have gone to sleep. Well, showered first. Because the jail. Dungeon-like. But they go instead to church. To the assembly. These men were going to fortify themselves through prayer. They were going to get with other believers. And that's what we're seeing them do. And the Holy Spirit has preserved this record for us to say this is how it can be done. And there they delivered the the praise report to the believers. We stood up in front of these guys. Look, the guys that Peter stood up and said, look, whether you're going to obey God or not, we're going to obey God. Peter knew who these guys were. They killed his Lord. He witnessed this. There was not like, well, you know, these guys, they, you know, they might be good. They might know they were evil men. They were masterminds of the crucifixion. And Peter's standing up to them. And they go and they tell, and all of the, all of the believers that were there, at, alive in Jerusalem at the time, they knew this. And so they share this amazing victory in spite of the opposition and the threats, verse 24. So when they heard that, that is the other disciples, they raised their voice to God with one accord and said, Lord, you are God who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. That Greek word for accord is a compound Greek word. It means that they had a, um, a shared passion. They were passionate about this. They didn't just say, wow, that's just wonderful news. What time's the cafe open? No, they were into this emotionally as well as spiritually. Raising their voices together, praising God. Again, they knew what those Christ-hating men were capable of. They knew them as the masterminds of the cross. But they stood their ground nonetheless. That's what we're looking at. Peter does not say, well, okay, look, they don't want us preaching anymore, so we better not do it. He goes the other direction. But to do this, he's got to get with God, and he gets with God's people to get with God. Determine, determine to further the gospel, building themselves up in prayer with the assembly, and said, this is what they were saying in their prayer, Lord, you are God, who made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. Straight to the first verse of the Bible is where they go. In the beginning, God created. God created. From nothing, God created. No one can do that. Uh, you know, if they boast about creating things in a laboratory, yeah, but they're using other created things to do it. None of them are going with uncreated abilities, abilities to create from, from nothing. That belongs to God. The word of God and prayer. They always go together. Where is that in the Bible? John chapter 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my word, my words, plural, abide in you, You will ask what you desire, and it shall be done for you. If my word is in you, if you're sticking with my word, which which has my will within it, when you pray, when you ask, they're inseparable. What characterized these first Christians? 
Jesus' name, number one. They're very clear about that. There was nothing, you know, well, I'm a Christian. What does it mean? What does it mean to be a Christian? It means I love Jesus Christ. He's my Lord and my Savior. He died for me. I am a sinner. I should go to hell for breaking his law. But he saved me from that judgment. He was crucified on my behalf. And he rose again. Prayer characterized them. The resurrection. They're preaching the resurrection. Scripture. We're going to come to that. They're all about the word, these people. What is wrong with them? From hell's perspective, that's what's wrong with them. They're into the word of God. It's not this emotional Christianity. Well, I know the plan of salvation. Therefore, get out of my face. You can't tell me anything else. That's not enough. God didn't just say, here's my plan of salvation. You don't need anything more. Over 30,000 chapters in this, well, uh, verses in the scripture. Uh, there for us to avail ourselves of. I don't know. If it was the last time maybe you've been in the prophet Nahum. Or Zephaniah, or Zechariah. And you go back to it, and you say, boy, why am I, why did I not, why did I watch that silly show? I should have been reading this. This is where the, not by might, not by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. When Zechariah says that, what about in Zechariah 3, when he says, take those filthy garments off my man, Joshua. And adorn him with clean garments. Satan standing there accusing him, and he's this, and he sinned that, and he did that. God said, I've forgiven him. The Bible, God's word. Anyway, back to this verse here, where they talk about the sovereignty and the creator, the creating of God, or not the creating of God, but God's creative, creative ability. They never saw God anything less than God. I mean, you, you have to define that to some unbelievers because their definition of God is not matching the scripture. Their God is not always sovereign. Look at the gods of the Greeks and the Romans. They were, they were just human, sinning human beings on steroids. They had all of this muscle and power, but they were vindictive. They were hateful. They were murderers, liars, sneaks. Every sinful attribute the pagan gods had. Even in India, they have gods that, you know, are gods of murder. Well, no Christian has biblical permission to believe the devil-made false science of species evolution. You have no permission as a Christian to believe that somehow we have evolved from one species into another. And I would go so far that even as an unbeliever, you have no right to be that dumb. You just have no right. You're up to something. Scientists that want evolution to be the truth are up to something. And they tip their hand when they say, well, the theory of evolution, which they've tried to extract from it now. And you say, well, show me the missing link. Well, I can't. Why? It's missing. It never was. It's not missing. Okay. You know the things about, you know, searching Mars. We found water on Mars. I, you want to impress me with that? Find a milkshake on Mars. <laughs> that would really be impressive. Water's just not, you know, it's just another. Anyway. And it's got to be vanilla. So, verse 25. Who by the mouth of your servant David said, Why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? This is so much here. Of course, Psalm 2 is about the sun being turned on by, by those of his, of his creation. 
The use of Psalm chapter 2, and here particularly verse 1, acknowledges that the world will oppose the plan of God and the Son of God, the Messiah, the Anointed One. That's what that psalm is all about. And we hear the voices of God, of man, of the Son, and the Holy Spirit, all in that one psalm too. All in that single psalm, Psalm 2. Its original context shows the crowning of the Son of God as the ultimate descendant of David. God will end human rule, and the Messiah will rule over the earth with a rod of iron. This is going to happen. Moses knew it even. And Moses was so far, so many, how many years away from it was Moses, and yet he knew that God rules. And it ends, of course, at Armageddon. At Calvary, the world crucified Christ. But at the end of Armageddon, Christ crushes the world. And so we read in 1 Corinthians that beautiful verse, Then comes the end. And it's kind of an abrupt, then comes the end. And right there, it could stop right there, just for a moment, or pause, and then continue. When he delivers the kingdom of God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and power, he delivers the kingdom. He puts an end to it. It's God's kingdom, and that is the Godhead. And the church, the church is supposed to be militant now. We have an attitude against sin. What do you, well, should we be nonchalant about it? All of the death and horror that it causes? The church is supposed to be militant against sin, aggressive against sin. Go into the world, preach Christ to all the creatures. That doesn't mean the birdies and the mice and things like that. But... When Christ comes, the church will be triumphant. And we're going to be there to see that. I imagine, just thinking if I could scalp tickets for it, but that would kind of like disqualify me from being there. Anyway, why did the nations rage and the people plot vain things? Well, they're plotting in their rage directed against Christ. But here's something, this is something very special about this psalm. Down through the centuries, this passage sat silent in the Psalms. Oh, it, it, the Jews understood it to be a messianic psalm, but that's as far as they could go with that. Even the prophets, they could go no further than that. It awaited application. No man knew to whom it applied until Jesus of Nazareth shows up in his ministry. And now his followers. They make the connection. Not until the Holy Spirit told the Christians, who are now telling the world, that this is Jesus Christ, and the nations rage against him, and the people plot vain things. Vain, because they're not going to work against the Christ. The world hates their maker without a cause. Why do you hate God? Why are you so bitter, Misty Atheist? And again, I strongly believe all atheists believe in God. The God of, but the God of their thinking is the God that they want to, uh, that they're bitter against. And we're supposed to help them to come out of that by saying, tell me about your God. I mentioned earlier, the world, you know, they, they, their, their definition of God is not biblical usually. And we have to say, listen, our God is not like the God of man-made thoughts. Jesus said this 
when the Pharisees, he was talking about how the Pharisees were rejecting him. And he says, but this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in the law. They hated me without a cause. Go up to somebody and say, why do you hate Christ? What has he ever done to you? Except maybe make you feel guilty for doing mean things to others or even to yourself. All the laws of God, the the rabbis called the the law the fence of the law. It protected you. It, It blocked you from entering into things that would do you harm. Uh, this is still true of God's law. When he prohibits something, he is trying to protect us, but people don't believe it. And because they get away with sin in one lifetime, they think that therefore it is somehow acceptable. Throughout the great tribulation, God will give mankind a chance, even in the midst of the great tribulation, to repent. But most will opt out and they will demonstrate their refusal to subject themselves to Christ through blasphemy. Revelation 16. And men were scorched with great heat, and they blasphemed the name of God who has power over these plagues, and they did not repent and give him glory. So they doubled down in their stubbornness. It was pointless. It was irrational. This is what sin will do. Once it's embraced, Revelation again, chapter 16, verse 21. And great hail fell from heaven upon men, each hailstone about the weight of 75 pounds. Men blasphemed God because of the plague of the hail, since the plague was exceedingly great. Bitter against God, hating him for being God, for exercising his right to be God. He has no right to judge me. Oh, yes, he does. It's a prerogative of God to judge sinners and anybody else he he wants to judge. Verse 26 now. Now, we're still still talking about Psalm 2, which applies to Jesus Christ and the world's hatred of him, which the apostles were dealing with at this point. Verse 26, the kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers were gathered together against Yahweh and against his Messiah, his anointed. Christ in the Greek, Messiah for the Hebrew. Anointed in the English. (laughs) The whole world endorsed Calvary, at least in representation. Luke chapter 23. An inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. Well, the Greeks, they were the ones that gave the Romans their, really their, their, their newfound culture. The Romans took the gods of the Greeks and they renamed them and claimed them as their own. Zeus was now Jupiter, for example. And uh, they greatly admired the Greeks, even though they, they conquered them. But that was the culture. The Greeks represent the culture. Then the Latin, which the government, to this day, you go to some courthouses, they've got Latin inscribed on it. It's like, and usually it says, I'll translate what most of them say. You think you're going to find justice in here? (laughs) That's why they put it in Latin. They don't want you to know what they're up to. Now, granted, there are good judges. They really are. There are about three of them. (laughs) But uh, they're, they're good judges, but there are a lot of bad ones. And the system is just, a, you know, sinners just gone wild. Anyhow, uh, of course, then the Hebrew, it, the, representing religion without God's Messiah, without the Christ. And that's what the Hebrew religion became. 
the Judaism that we understand in the scripture and today is the Old Testament without its fulfillment. They've missed it. And we talk about how difficult it would be for someone to come along now and say, I am the Messiah, because you could say, you, how are you going to prove you're from the tribe of David? You keep, the records are gone. And then if you could prove you were from the tribe of David, how are you going to zero it down to being from the house of David, from the tribe of Judah to the tribe of David? So they've missed it. That is a, a rationale that you would think alone would stir them to reevaluate. But, you know, when you're up against a believer, oftentimes you're up against a network. It's not just one, their belief system. It's their family also, many times, or their culture. If you're witnessing to, um, or for me, witnessing to Roman Catholics, Irish Roman Catholics mainly in New York, it was up against a family. They, they were concerned what their family would think if they became a believer in the Bible and no longer a follower of the Pope and, and the magisterium. And that was a hurdle. And I tell them that. I say, I know, you've got, you've got to worry about, you know, your wife your, or your fiancé or your mom, your dad, your uncles. You love your family. I understand that. But if you love your family more than Christ, you're not worthy of Christ. And that comes with a high payment. Well... At the first and second coming of Christ, the world's opposition uh, is organized and official, and it is pointless. When he first came, at the first coming, it was organized. It was official, and it was pointless. And that will be the way at Armageddon, too, just that he won't stand for it. So the psalmist saw the kingdoms of men opposed to the kingdom of heaven, and he saw their doom Verse 27, but truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, were gathered together. Man against God. This part here, for truly against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed. Peter, and well, not Peter now, now it's all the believers. This is part of what was going on when they gathered together for prayer. And they begin to speak the word and, and praise the Lord. And here's the speaking of the word. They're quoting scripture because they knew scripture. This holy servant, Paul says, let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And this is the spirit of humility. It's very difficult uh, to be humble. Uh, to, when I say humble, I mean uh, mindful of who you are in the presence of God. When you've got things picking at you. It, couldn't, it might be other people. It could be yourself. Telling yourself, you know, where's that line between, you know, confidence and arrogance and things like that. Well, the believer sorts these things out through the word of God. <clears throat> Paul says, who being in the form of God, and nobody else can that apply to but Christ. You can't say that about Michael the archangel who being in the form of God did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a willing servant and coming in the likeness of men. See, the Greek, in the Greek, the servant, the bond servant is really slave. It's just like that, slave. But, but the context, the usage of it is connected to the Jewish bond slave, because what made a bond slave a bond slave versus just a slave is one was willing and the other was not. One was enslaved. 
and the other was a bond slave. And Christ was willing. And so when Paul, uh, when the Christians here in verse 27, for truly against your holy servant, this, this is, connects him to everything Isaiah was saying about my servant. When, when his holy servant comes, the Messianic Psalms. <clears throat> of course, if they're going to reach the Gentiles, they're going to have to learn to shave some of the Jewish culture down in their presentation. And really, none of them could do it well except Paul and Barnabas. And then the others, of course, you know, would, would, they learned from that. But, but it was just what a task for a, to be raised up in such a strict religious culture. And not, not a condemnation of that culture, but uh, to, to, to then reach those outside of it without losing the essential points and being able to dismiss not only the non-essentials, but the detours, the unimportant things. Well, as God anointed David to rule Israel, Jesus is anointed to rule the world. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, it says here, and the Gentiles and the people of Israel were gathered. Peter names names. He could be arrested for this. Herod was still alive. Pontius Pilate. Um, I don't know where he was, right? At the, at this, he probably was still there. This is not too far from the crucifixion uh, timeline, so he's still there. And the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So he, he naming, he's naming names collectively. The kings, the government, the Gentiles, the society, Israel, religions without Messiah. And so there's a sad irony here that Israel's religious leaders took their stand with pagan Gentiles against Yahweh's Messiah. Well, wait a minute, you guys are supposed, you have the oracles. You're supposed to I'd be able to identify the Messiah. We understand the Gentiles not getting it. Why didn't you get it? Other Jews got it. Well, and then what they were applying here is an enemy of my enemy is my friend. And it damned their souls, unless they repented. Verse 28, he's connecting that with verse 27, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Well, of course, the cross was no accident to God. God was not, he was saddened by the crucifixion. But he just wasn't surprised. What's the first thing that comes into your mind at the name Jesus Christ? What's, what's the, well, that's a name and a title. Or the name and distinction. Lord is his title. Christ distinguishes him from everybody. He is the anointed one. Jesus is the name that he identifies with sinners through that name. What's the first thing that comes to your mind? All right, back to you teens. Those of you teens who are around, who have embraced unbelieving friends, they are on the attack. And if you are defenseless, they are going to storm you. And the next thing you know, you will be an antichrist. And you will have resentment towards Jesus Christ and his people. This is what the devil's not playing. He hates your guts. And if you're just dumb enough to not believe that, he's going to exploit it. So, are you too going to line up with those who are anti-Christ, or are you going to show a backbone? Are you going to, at your young age, say, I believe in Jesus Christ, and I will set my life to follow him. I don't take orders from Satan. My flesh gives me a hard enough time that I don't have to help him out. Or are you going to resent me for saying it? I don't care about that too much. I, I just hope if, you've, if you're letting Satan pick your friends, what else are you going to let him do for you? 
uh, you know, he's not finished. You can strike back. You can fortify yourself in prayer. You can get a plan, be part of the plan to attack. You know, why don't you preach to your friends? Why do they get to introduce drinking to you and drugs to you and what other lawless things they want to introduce you and you can't introduce righteousness? Evil company corrupts morals, says Paul. Who Raise your hand if you doubt that. I know, you wouldn't raise your hand even if you did, but... Well, anyway, I'm sorry, am, I, am I getting a little in the spirit? I hope so. That's my intention, is to let the spirit just lead me through it. Anyway, verse 28. Yeah, I, I get angry. I, I get angry at Satan picking off our kids. What should I do, throw a party? Um, you know, it comes down to you, not mom or dad. Well, mom and dad didn't. Well, shut up. It's you. It's you before the cross. What are you going to do? Mom and dad are not going to fill in for you at judgment. You're going to stand there alone. You're either going to be buck, I have to censor that word, buck naked, or you're going to be clothed in righteousness, and it's up to you. Verse 28, to do whatever your hand and your purpose determined before to be done. Of course, God was, as I mentioned, saddened but not surprised at the savagery poured out on his son. Isaiah 53, surely he has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted. So the prophet called it, Isaiah, over 700 years before the crucifixion, that this was going to happen to the anointed one. Many of the rabbis missed the point that there would be a suffering phase in the Messiah's life and then the victorious phase, ergo Calvary, end of Armageddon. But the New Testament church has picked it up. Uh, but to God, it was worth it. To God, I was worth it. For him to smite his son, see him stricken and afflicted, it was worth it if it got me to heaven. And if that's true of me, of course, it is true of all who will come. Isaiah fifty three eleven, He shall see the labor of his soul and be satisfied. Yeah, that's what I was after. Yeah, I suffered. Yeah, they spat on me. They pulled on my beard. They punched me. They, they, put, they whipped me, and then they nailed me to a tree, to a cross. Yeah, it was worth it. I'm satisfied with the results. Man, is that not, is that not going on the attack? And verse 29, and Now, Lord, look on their threats and grant your servants that with all boldness they may speak your word. Because they were afraid. So they had to ask for boldness. That makes perfect sense. I'm right there with them. Fortification to be used in the attack. Body armor. In the attack. Your flesh has armor too. Don't think that because, you know, the helmet of salvation. Well, your flesh has a helmet of defiance. In the shield of faith, those things are beautiful, but your flesh has got one too. Don't think that this is going to be an easy fight. And the flesh is going to say, oh, look at that uniform. He's all ready for me. I better get out of the way. Satan will get out of the way before your flesh does. Anyway, Paul followed this pattern also. Ephesians chapter 6. Praying always. This is after he talks about the Christian armor. Praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit. Being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints and for me. He's saying, praying always and for me. He says, pray for me that utterance may be given to me, that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. He's in jail 
for, for serving Christ, and he's asking for boldness. Well, I think boldness got you there, Paul. And Paul is saying, well, I want boldness to keep me wherever God wants me to be. I'm not going to take for granted that I was bold yesterday, and therefore I'm going to be so tomorrow. It is His mercies are new every morning, meaning I need a refill. Notice that they did not ask for the opposition to cease or for protection from them. Not that those things would have been wrong to ask for, but it, it doesn't come up. They're asking to be aggressive. They're not asking to be defended. They're asking to be turned loose. Send us into action. And they're asking for the courage to speak God's word. We need courage. No man is strong enough spiritually on his own. It's not possible. You can be strong in courage on carnal matters, stronger than on spiritual matters. Uh, you can muster up enough strength to face death. Unbelievers do it. But to face life in Christ, you need Christ. So here we have the glory of God. Um, not the needs of men. The glory of God, not the needs of men, is the highest purpose to answered prayer. And a lot of people don't believe that. They, they, you know, they think the church is a social service institution of some sort, and they miss the point of having the gospel. We've been, you know, Paul lays down some heavy-duty rules about giving handouts in church. And we're going to come to that in chapter 6, not this morning, unless, unless you've got nothing else to do. We can... We can go there. Anyway, uh, coming back to this, Augustine. Augustine is, you know, he's one of those characters, highly articulate in his devotion to God, but still his attachment to Rome is, just kind of makes it... Well, Rome wasn't yet, had not yet evolved to what we know it today in his day, but it, it, was, it had some of it going on. But uh, you would do well to read some of... Uh, the Confessions of Augustine's worth reading... He says this, pray as though everything depends on God and work as though everything depended on you. Perfect sense. Verse 20, verse 30. By stretching out your hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. Well, the supernatural activity of God opened the door for preaching. And that's what Peter is, and the, the disciples are saying. We want to preach. And if miracles are going to get us to preach, then Lord, pour them out. Uh, it would another sense, uh, uh, sensible thing to ask. And that signs and wonders may be done through the name of your holy servant. Uh, you know, these are the initial confirmations on apostolic authority. Those apostles needed these miracles for everybody to line up in back of them. You know, we could say it this way. Following Jesus Christ is a tough act to follow. And so God says, you know, I know that. And so I'm going to give you... Uh, an advantage over everyone else. I'm going to give them advantages too, but you're going to get a super dose because you're going to be my authority. We wouldn't have a New Testament were it not for the apostles, not a trustworthy one. Mark chapter 16, and they went out and preached everywhere, the Lord working with them and confirming the word through the accompanying signs. And so the very thing that brought negative attention to them and made, uh, caused them to be arrested, they're asking for more. Hey, the miracle got us arrested because we then preached the resurrection of Jesus. Can we have another dose? That's what's going on here. They're so, uh, that they have tunnel vision. All they can see is the preaching of the gospel. I would like that. But, I, you know, that has to, God has to govern that. This is heavy-duty uh, 
ministry. God, we need to make more lame people whole. And if persecution does it, then bring it. Bring it. We'll, we'll, we'll face it. Verse 31. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they spoke the word of God with boldness. They didn't speak in tongues. They spoke the word of God. This is not uncommon for God to shake things up when he shows up. I know our brother Jesse and I, he, wherever you are, you remember we were praying. I think I was praying. You were listening. And it was an earthquake. Remember that? Yeah, amen. I was praying. <laughs> I, I will never, ever be able to leave that story out. Yes, it was, it was uh, fun, was it not? But anyway, others felt it too in, you know, in the area. I don't know that anybody else felt this one. It seems like only the disciples did. Anyway, I have a question for those of us who struggle to pray. Is it a busy schedule that keeps us from praying or unbelief? Which one? If you're not praying, if you don't pray, is it because you're too busy or you don't believe? Now, that's a question that you only can answer. Prayer is hard work, and you've got to take it. Then is narrow gate. You just squeeze in. Anyway, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Uh, this is, there's only one Pentecost. And there's only one Calvary. There's only one Pentecost. There's one baptism of the Spirit. Many ref, uh, subsequent fillings, fresh fillings of the Spirit <coughs> as going on here. Uh, we are living in the day of Pentecost. We don't need another Pentecost. We need to act on the existing one. Uh, we don't need new revelations of Scripture. We need to act on the existing revelations. There's enough here. So uh, these are very powerful points that the Scripture make. The Holy Spirit did not come as a visitor at Pentecost. He came as an occupant. He did not just touch down on the day of Pentecost. Okay, see you later. He stayed. John's Gospel, chapter 14. And I will pray the Father, and he will give you another helper. That's the paraclete, the comforter. That he may abide with you, here it comes, forever. It's a permanent arrangement. Seven times in the book of Acts, we read of men being filled or full of the Spirit. I think this is exciting. We're almost done. Hopefully this makes it worth a few minutes more. We see the filling of the Spirit and they were speaking God's word. That's Acts chapter 2, and verse 4, Acts chapter 4, verse 8, and then here in verse 31. Filled serving God's people, Acts chapter 3, verse 6. Filled to verify God's work, Acts chapter 11, verse 24. Filled to counterattack God's enemy, Acts chapter 13, verse 9. And then filled to die for Christ. Acts 7, verse 55. In each one of those, it is explicitly stated that they were filled or full. And so here where it says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, that's what it takes to do many things for Christ. It's not an exhaustive list. Hopefully, when the men come in on Sunday mornings to prepare the church to make sure it's clean, to wash the windows, to blow the leaves, to sweep the floors. When they come in to do this, it's the filling of the Spirit in their hearts. That's what's doing it. 
when, when they said, I'll sign up for that, that was the filling of the Holy Spirit. Now, that doesn't mean you're not full if you didn't sign. Well, maybe, maybe now's a good point to pour some guilt out. <laughs> doesn't mean if you're not called to do that. Every need is not a calling. It's just impossible. You can't. Every, no one can answer every need. It's the calling that has your name on it. That's the one you must answer. And if you don't, you probably won't get another one until you act on that one. When I came into ministry, it was on the, the announcements. The announcer came up and said, we have a need in the ushers ministry for men to serve. And he went on to talk about other things. And God said, I need you to do that. And I did it, and I never stopped serving. So um, in addition to listening to the announcements and praying and shaking the place, you know, I have many talents. Just, but it doesn't lower the price of gas for me. Anyway... <laughs> And they spoke the word of God with boldness. And there it is. The Lord fortified them through prayer as they requested. To hold to God's word. Trouble and anguish have overtaken me, yet your word is my delight. I want this in my life every day. Let's pray. Our Father, there's so much in your word. And you, you, you would think that we would just submit to it. But it's such a fight. So many distractions, so much weakness, and yet it is just staying in it, persevering and enduring at the same time that brings results against the enemy and his foul kingdom. If you're here this morning and you've been listening and you've said, you know, I, I am letting the world dictate to me how I should think I am letting Satan choose my friends. If that is you, then after service, come up. The pastors are here. Ask them to pray for you. Begin to fortify yourself in prayer. If you've been listening and you've never opened your heart to Christ, then you're dead in your sins according to Christ. And you know, you know the Holy Spirit of God is pulling on your heart, inviting you to do something about it. You can blaspheme and harden your heart against God and pay the price that you can't afford. Or you can come to him and receive the forgiveness because he paid a debt you, you could never pay. He took away your sin. If you'd like to give your life to Christ right here, right now, then make this prayer with me and mean it. And God will receive you. You say, Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I have broken your law. I've turned against you, and I come to you now, and I ask you to forgive me. I ask you to receive me as your own. I ask you for that from this day going forward in my life, you will be my Lord, and I will be your subject. And now, Father, we commit these things to your hands. In Jesus' name, amen.